Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Good evening. Um, the Academy was set up as an Academy of Artists and Architects, and a place where all manner of ideas could be exchanged, interrogated and debated. And I hope that in this David Chipperfield built space, that is starting to happen more explicitly on, on more occasions than it was, we were able to do in the past. But I think it's fair to say that the architecture department at the Royal Academy over the last 20 years or so has been a place where different disciplines come together. There's been a porosity and a generosity of spirit and curiosity, that's enough osities, for us all to learn. And so this evening's event is part of an ongoing series interrogating the relationship between aesthetics and architecture. And in particular, philosophers and architects are brought together. The subject under scrutiny, and it will be rapier-like and broad in the way that it's approached, is politics and space. And I'm reminded of the fact that in this very building, the new building or the old building that's been revamped by David Chipperfield, approaches to space and the, the politics, macro and micro politics of space, range from the English landscape in our collections gallery from Turner, Constable, and the triumph of that genre, and attitudes to architecture and landscape being antithetical, one being seen as the opposite of the other in the 18th century, right up to the exhibition of Renzo Piano's work, where one thinks of Renzo and Richard Rogers' creation of that space in front of the Pompidou Centre that once seemed so radical and maybe now still does. Anyway, the frame of just this building throws up all sorts of ideas, um, but to discuss and debate tonight, I'm delighted to welcome Farshim Mashavi, who is uh, Order of the British Empire and a Royal Academician, who was part of Foreign Office Architects, who's now the principal partner of uh, Farshim Mashavi Architects, whose buildings, among others, include the MCA in Cleveland and the Yokohama Ferry Terminal, as well as her work for Victoria Beckham's flagship store here in London. She's the author of numerous books and she's a visiting professor at Harvard. And Professor Jacques Rancière, uh, one of the most distinguished academics and philosophers in the world today, certainly in the Western tradition, but I would venture beyond, author of numerous books, and I think it's fair to say a philosophical cult in and of himself, although that's not the way he would project it. So without further ado, please welcome to the stage Farshi Mashavi and Jacques Rancière. Thank you. Jacques Rontier will start and make a presentation. Farshid will then make a presentation. Then the conversation will continue. We will finish at one minute to eight o'clock. And if there's time, we will take questions from the floor. If there's time. Jack. I must start now. You must start okay. in your own time, but now. Okay, yeah. I do it. I do, thank you. <clears throat> so thank you for the invitation. Well, to set up, in my way, the backdrop of our conversation, I will recall some, some points, uh, which for me are basic points about politics and space. Politics deals with the way in which bodies fit or don't fit in a space, a space which is both material and symbolic. What I call polis is the organization of a community where everybody is at his or her own place. <clears throat> this doesn't mean that they are immobile, but it means that they move in the circle of activities defining their occupation, 
occupation meaning at once their job and the way of being suiting their position in the community. What I call a distribution of the sensible is not only a distribution of occupations, it's also a structure of the visible, a distribution of the bodies in a common landscape. Politics, I assume, starts with the disruption of that landscape. It starts with a dissociation of the normal relation between the materiality of places and their symbolic signification. We know that the very word democracy, for instance, first met, men, meant a rearrangement of the relation between the material space of dwelling and the symbolic space of the city. <clears throat> in reconst in, in cons constructing a kind of abstract political space made of places distant from one another, you know, <clears throat> Christianus in the sixth century before Christ invented democracy as a form of visibility of the power of the people. The power of the people is the power of people that are no more at, the, at their material and symbolic place. And perhaps the artifact that best symbolizes that, that disruption might, might be the, the barricade of 19th century revolution. So an anti-architecture in one sense, you know. The barricade was, was not so much, you know, kind of milit uh, an instrument of military tactic as it was a political reconfiguration of the space of the city because it blocked the normal use of the streets, circulation, <clears throat> because it was built by workers who were no more in their workshop with the stones paving the streets, with the carts normally destined to transport goods and the mattresses and furniture used for family life. So the barricade undid the normal distribution of the spheres, economic, political, domestic, which is also the normal set of relations between inside and outside, private and public, etc. It is this subversion of the whole distribution of activities and the whole form of visibility of the city that created the insurgent people as a political subject. Well, we know that this decentral use of space was revived by the Occupy movements of the last decade. Those movements, in fact, carried out a twofold form of dissensus. First, they stayed in a place, in a space destined for circulation, but also they broke away from the normal use of space in political protest, which is to move in the streets and shout slogans. Instead, they decided to stay, to discuss among themselves and to build tents, you know, creating a new form of redistribution of the private and the public. Well, in that framework, I think the political situation of architectures is a bit paradoxical because normally architecture does two things. It builds houses for the everyday life of the individuals and monuments symbolizing the community and accommodating public powers. So it may appear to do exactly the contrary of politics since it separates the inside from the outside the visible from the invisible, the dom domestic life and public life. And architecture is the art that, more than any other, determines the way in which its products will be used. This anticipation of the use of a building has often been reduced to the functionalist principle, form follows function, that has been harshly criticized during the last decades. But the functionalist formula is only, I think, a particular form of a more radical principle, which is 
the necessary cradle of architectural practice, use, follows, design. This gave to architecture a very strange position, both in the aesthetic regime of art and in revolutionary politics. On the one hand, this principle of destination is, you know, is quite far from the idea of the aesthetic experience as a free play with a free appearance, torn away from the hierarchies of knowledge and property. On the other hand, of course, architecture was in the first line to achieve the dream of the aesthetic regime, the construction of a new form of community where freedom and equality would be achieved no more in laws and institutions, but in the sensory experience of everybody. And I think from this point of from, from this point we have a kind of original tension between two aesthetics. The aesthetic construction of the forms of life of a new community and the aesthetic process of construction of a political people. The common space that the architects build is a space that should not or cannot be blocked, you know. You know, it was, it, it was you know, the new city dreamed dream by many architects, you know, was precisely this, a, city, a town in which the functions and the modes of circulation were clearly separated so that cars circulate freely, for instance, at the lower level, and pedestrians freely at the upper level. But of course, what has become impossible is that pedestrians turn, turn cars upside down to construct barricades and construct themselves as a new political people. Well, it is true that such dreamed cities were never built. And architecture is not only about constructing buildings and cities. It's about constructing images and forms of perceptions. And in this way, it often compensates for the solidity and immobility of its buildings by creating images able to initiate a perception of a common space as a mobile space. This was, of course, of course the case with the architectural or quasi-architectural projects, you know, that blossomed, you know, after the revolution in Russia, whose famous, most famous example, of course, is the Tatlin's Tower, destined to both shelter the offices of the international and to symbolize the movement of the revolution assaulting the sky. And all those, all those architecture, you know, were characterized by a kind of, a kind of emphasis on the oblique line, you know, the oblique line, a line of equality, cancelling the verticality of the separation between low and high, but also a line of disorientation, cancelling the ordinary coordinates of perception to teach people to dwell and act in a space that had become mobile, that had become time. So, so building in space also means playing with the representation of space. And of course, the architects and urbanists are not the only actors on this stage. In the 1920s, you know, while the architects and designers of the Bauhaus set out to build a whole new style of life, the surrealist poets invented a way of walking in Paris that prolonged the urban insurrections of the past century by awakening a potential of desire and subversion that they saw ciphered in the signs or windows of outmoded shops or the architecture of the arcades doomed to destruction. 
Then, in the 1950s and 1960s, the situationists complicated the story by linking the mobility of the surrealist work with that of modernist and utopian architecture. They first found in the architectural utopias of Constant or the new helicopter buildings of American architects, the models of place suitable to the subversive practice of urban derive. Before, before rejecting them and throwing the architects out of the Situationist International. Then, they joined the action of the May 68 students who, in their way, sent the ambiguities of the mobile derive, you know, back to the clear line of separation of the barricade. And the barricade was not only a reminiscence of the past, it was, it was connected with the struggle against the planning policies of the state. And also, it was a form of revival of the dream, which links you know, the political subversion with the aesthetic one. The, the dream of the configuration of a new sensory space of the community where the partitions of territories and activities sustaining social hierarchies have been abolished. Of course, we are far from this dream today. But it sometimes transpires as though the architects and urbanists tried to integrate all those contradictory forms of mobility that have characterized the last century, to integrate the oblique lines of revolutionary drawings, the surrealist wandering, the situationist derive, and even the activity of the insurgents on the barricades, into a kind of polymorphous mobile architecture. Well, I'm thinking here of the projects presented two years ago in the American Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale under the title, The Architectural Imagination. So the architects were asked to imagine projects from the, for the transformation of some transitory spaces in Detroit, of course, a symbolic place. So they were conceptual projects destined not to practical realization, but to create, a, I quote, a new metaphor of the city. And what is fascinating in those projects is this obsession with mobility. For instance, there is a project of a kind of spiraling parking place, which at the same time is a place for circulation and seems to engender out of its own movement, you know, new spaces and notably cultural amenities on the top, you know. There was also the project of a bunch of pavilions and pergolas <clears throat> that are the, supposed to create porosity, you know, kind of very strong word, you know, in the modern architectural discourse, porosity between inside, the inside and the outside, with the idea that the very distinction between inside and outside must, must be overcome if people are to move. And the book presenting the project was introduced by a kind of credo which seems to transfer you know, to porosity the revolutionary virtue of oblique lines. I quote, a city of porous walls is a city that promotes equality. Well, this, this strange equation you know, seems to be a response, of course, to the criticism to which the architectural imagination is exposed today. The criticism that says that its obsession with mobility, porosity, flexibility, etc., is attuned to the request of capitalism, because now in our countries, at least, 
Capitalism needs mobile people who can change their job and move to other places and make their time flexible to adapt themselves to the rhythm of financial capitalism and make it a kind of new form of subjective experience of time and space. And also there is, there is a, a, a criticism that argues that this play with mobile architectures, you know, you know, conceals a new form of mobility characterizing our presence, you know. I mean the migrations of millions of people rushing to our countries as, <clears throat> as a free economic misery or political persecution. Well, it's always bad politics, I think, that tries to capitalize on the feeling of guilt. But this conflict of mobilities sometimes entails more interesting forms of combination of architectural imagination and political activism. <clears throat> Since we are London, we can think of the enterprise of forensic architectures, you know, using architectural knowledge and techniques, you know, to create evidence of forms of violence, both inscribed and erased on a territory. Or, since we are not, <clears throat> not far from the French coastline, we can think of the work of a group of architects working with artists, writers, and social scientists in the so-called jungle where migrants stay near Calais while expecting to cross the channel. And those architects precisely question the separation of worlds entailed in the juxtaposition of spaces. <clears throat> on the one side, a space where people live, and, and on the other side, a space where they survive. And they question, <clears throat> they question this separation in two ways. First, with <clears throat> documentary work showing that even the makeshift barracks of the camp proved a sense of inhabiting a world. And second, by elaborating <clears throat> a, a, a whole urban project a cosmopolitan town, cosmopolitan town of the 20, 21st century erasing the separation between a decent province town and a muddy jungle. Not surprisingly, of course, the project remained a project and the camp was raised. But, however, it's a significant case, I think, of displacement of architectural imagination. Well, Farshin Mousavi proposes an overform of displacement. Displacement from the macro-political level <clears throat> of the situation of architecture in the global capitalist process to the macro-political micro level of the practice itself, where the architect can play with the temporality of the building process and the material specificities of its elements to bend the rules of the game and possibly divert the ways of being mobile or immobile in a place. And I'm, what, what I think interesting is that, that micropolitics takes on, I think, different forms, perhaps reflecting the tensions that I tried to sketch very quickly. When, for instance, when she deals with the construction of a residential complex near Paris, she underlines the roles of effects, you know, allowing the dweller to construct their own sense of inhabiting and the relations they want to establish between inside and outside privacy or community. And so, in, in, in this case, the micropolitics, micropolitical intervention is intended, I would say, to to bring the neoliberal free choice slightly beyond or besides its usual standard, you know. Instead, 
for instance, the conception of the Yokohama port terminal, as she, um, as she shows it, you know, clearly stages a conflict of forms of mobility, because a place where normally you just pass, you just pass at a, at a very precise time, you know, for moving to another place, this place is transformed, you know, is transformed in a totally different place, you know. <clears throat> In place, a place when, where people can, are invited to take their time, stay as long as they wish, and perform activ activities unexpected in such a place, from strolling to sport or painting. Or in the case of museum of the museum, you know, that, that she built in Cleveland, you know, there is this, this strong emphasis, you know, on two on two elements. First, the stairs inside and the reflecting panels, you know, of stainless uh, stainless steel outside, you know, which so the stairs inside and the panels outside, you know, offering a multiplicity of changing perspectives. So, so that, that they, make, they make this museum a place for an aesthetic experience, but aesthetic experience of a very special kind, because precisely it's not the experience of a place where you go to see, to see artworks, but rather, you know, the place of, for an aesthetic experience available to everybody, as it is disconnected from the normal function of exhibiting art, you know. So that, so that at the end, it seems that the, well, architecture perhaps becomes equal to the extent that it becomes, that it becomes a kind of, it becomes a kind of, 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 of landscape. You know? And I was struck, you know, by the, this kind of strange proximity of the, the way in which she describes, you know, either the museum or the port terminal, you know, and the description of landscape, you know, in 18th century, you know, English, liter English liter literature, you know, we precisely the, this obsession with, uh, well, this interest, you know, in, in undulation and so on, the undulating line and so on. So, but so I think it's interesting this kind of tension you know, between between different and perhaps uh, at, at just a point contradictory, uh, you know, uh, mod models of micropolitical intervention. But I think that she can uh, explain this much better than I do, and so I leave her the floor. Thank you. Yeah. That was, that was a wonderfully rapid 17 minutes as agreed journey from the barricades to the barricades by surrealism and situationism and then to Farshid's own work. Um, so it's a perfect handover and then um, you can pick up the gauntlet, Farshid, if you want, and then we'll converse. Thank great, you. great, thank you. Um, so I'm going to talk about the everydayness of built forms as a site of politics and as Jacques uh, Rancière has uh, just mentioned, there is a history of this in, 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 in the history of architecture uh, going back to the, uh, most recently to the 20th century avant-garde uh, and as well the situationists who had different takes on the relationship between architecture and micropolitics. Uh, in the case of uh, the situationists, it was one of proposing negation of, of built forms and, uh, and taking the reefs through streets. Uh, I think what Jacques' uh, work on the aesthetic regime uh, prompts us is to consider a very different way of looking at the relationship between architecture uh, of built forms and politics, and that's because he proposes that the, the, the two aesthetics and politics are inseparable. 
Um, for an architect, the question is not how people would be free to negate their built environment, but providing them with possibilities that would not exist without the building being there. For example, the asymmetric location of the window in this bedroom was complying with environmental regulations for daylight, or the budget of, for the size of glass generates privacy, illumination, and darkness, as well as, as simultaneous propositions. It allows the user to locate a bed against the wall to enjoy privacy, an armchair by the window where there is light to read a book. But there is nothing stopping the user to locate a bed in front of the window and um, and, and be exposed to the exterior. However, if the window had been placed symmetrically, there would be only one option. Architectural decisions such as this are political because they are about opening up possibilities that would otherwise not exist. And these possibilities remain in the room after the architect is gone. So buildings are active spatial agents even though they don't bear responsibility for what they do. For example, the handrail of the New York Guggenheim Museum transmits lowness and invites people to recline on it, with the result that those who would, might otherwise pass through its ramping galleries, as if they are walking along a supermarket, arms of a supermarket stop and lean on the handrail to look at the art. Surely, giving an independent role to the handrail was not Frank Lloyd Wright's intention, who designed the building as a unified totality in which parts must obey the whole. The lowness of the handrail is presumably the product of an earlier building regulation. So the question is, can architecture avoid the reductionist approach of the modernist movement that we continue to inherit, uh, its totalitarianism, and embrace a different way of configuring buildings that leads them to a multiplicity way of ways of seeing, saying, and doing? Here is the Yokohama Port Terminal, where we shifted the number of conventions that influence the way people typically engage with the ferry terminal instead of the monumentality of the conventional port terminal that contributes to their isolation from daily life, it is designed as a landscape. Instead of the conventional way of arranging it as, as a set of linear circulation routes to simply move passengers as directly as possible from uh, the entrance to the gates, which reduces its experience to a thoroughfare, it is designed as a looped circulation system through bifurcating floors so people can perambulate to the different levels to free them from the habit of passively passing through it so that they might choose it as a place to sit down and paint. Therefore, by shifting the conventions associated with the terminal, we loosen the building's relationship with traveling to allow people to free, freely and creatively respond to it. Jacques Rancière argues that the significance of aesthetics lies in the fact that what can be apprehended by the senses uh, determines possibilities for the participation of individuals in daily life. For him, politics is a disruption or dissensus in conventionally perceived or prescribed spaces to make that which did not possess grounds to be seen, seen, so that active participations replace passive participation. So we could say that by making the conventions of how everyday activities are arranged and familiar, architects open up possibilities for the way bodies of individuals are supposed to fit those everyday activities, and in doing so, ground buildings in the micropolitics of everyday life. I don't want to make this sound easy. The architectural process presents architects with many a priori decisions, conditions that they cannot change. To turn the terminal into a landscape, it took eight years of challenging conventions. And yet, it was a publicly funded project and the result of a competition. 
So there was an agreement with the client, client at the start on the direction of the descensus. In the case of a privately funding, fund, funded building, a subterranean approach to descensus might be needed by outwardly adhering to the program and the budget, but underneath the surface, opening it to foreign ideas, it also requires a rhizomatic way of working to seize the segmented and unpredictable nature of contemporary practice as an opportunity for dissensus. I love this manuscript on the left of Marcel Proust and how he described it to a friend. I have in, in progress a study on nobility, a Parisian novel, an essay on Saint-Beuve and Flaubert, an essay on women, an essay on pederasty, a study on stained glass windows, a study on tombstones, a study on the novel. From these desperate fragments, Proust began to shape a novel. Micropolitics in architecture requires a similar way of working, concurrently with different parts of a building and looking for shifts in them. Those might be small in scale, but can add up to shifting the building from a unified totality to an assemblage that offers a multiplicity of ways of seeing, saying, and doing. Similar to the open structure of these books on the right, that enable the reader to construct different narratives by linking chapters in different ways. The challenge for a building is, of course, that the different parts cannot remain as independent fragments. They must connect to provide the very many practical functions that they perform together. So if a map of the main characters of Marcel Proust looks like the one on the left, those of the building, which, which I would call affects, such as transience or intimacy emerge, not always from a single element, but a number of them together. Here is a privately funded building uh, in Nanterre, France, that houses social and price-capped apartment units, rooms for students, and maisonettes for penthouses in one, instead of segregating the different households and treating them differently, which has become the convention. They are stacked on top of each other so that they would encounter each other in the lifts in their vertical streets. On the other hand, instead of the typical deep floor with central corridor arrangements, which is commonly used only to save costs on the number of lifts, it is designed as a shallow slab, subdivided laterally, with every two apartments sharing a lift and a stair, foregoing the forced collectivism and the inconvenience that corridor brings to the inhabitants who have different habits and unpredictable comings and goings to instead generate privacy and the sense of autonomy for the inhabitants as they enter their homes. Structure is located along party walls uh, in color black, apartments um, between apartments, uh, hence giving owners the option of reconfiguring their apartments should their circumstances change during their life, obviating the need for them to move elsewhere. And I would argue giving them a longer sense of attachment between each household and the site, this site in Nanterre. Instead of the punctuated white render or brick envelopes of conventional affordable housing blocks that limit views as and mark them as buildings that are for people of less privilege, because glass and metal is commonly used for luxury housing and bank headquarters, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, the pure convenience and utilitarian building versus the beautiful. It is designed with full height glazing and aluminum shutters. The glass outer wall of each apartment is both reflective and transparent, depending on the time of the day and angle of the sun. Balcony and lodger divisions are also in glass with mirror-backed film to invert the experience from a surface that limits you to a surface that expands your visual depth perception. Each apartment is consequently a unique space as reflections of each resident or exterior context onto it is different each time. 
Sliding shutters provide the option to keep the lodges open or closed. They are designed with kite-shaped aluminum extrusions that change orientation from one end of the building to another, making light and views of each apartment unique. Instead of simply stacking its floors on top of one another, they're angled away or towards the grand axe to generate not one balcony, but three. At one end, double-height balconies with semi-privacy. In the center, a single-height with full privacy. At the other end, a triple-height one with low privacy, as three neighbors can see each other. I think the politics of the building is to be egalitarian in two ways. Firstly, the elements common to all inhabitants are designed in exactly in the same way to make it impossible to know when one apartment or student room starts or stops. This generates scalelessness or a confusion of the actual scale of each apartment room and therefore the sense of equality. However, difference is not removed altogether. Instead, instead of using difference to mark or represent wealth, difference is presented in the form of spatial scenarios that any one of the residents can choose from. Secondly, by using materials not common to affordable housing and assembling them with intricacy, it defies the idea that the aesthetics of affordable housing should be banal. The residents perceive this as well as passers-by who will be drawn to move around it to comprehend its complexity. Let's look at another kind of building, the museum in Cleveland. It is located in a cultural hub where residents and users are primarily affluent and white, but very close to African-American and Hispanic neighborhoods marked in red. MOCA is designed to be a disruption of the typical contemporary art museum that confines artistic experience to the paid gallery, wraps around them ancillary spaces, and grand circulations that are devoid of art. Instead, of, instead, it is based on an egalitarian view of artistic experience that can belong to anyone and exists anywhere in the museum. Like the Nanterre building, it is arranged as an assemblage of parts with no hierarchy between them, presenting visitors with different sides of the museum building. Its compact envelope has an hexagonal entry floor with five entrances for the museum so that it would be centered on the idea of reconfigurability and transience. Its fourth floor hosts the paid gallery and liberates the first three to be free of charge. Its second and third floor host the museum offices, classrooms, and workshops to reveal the duality of the museum, both as a place of display and a place where exhibitions are produced. Its stair is double-decker with one of the egress stairs stacked underneath the public stair, providing visitors with 10 different ways to ascend its four floors. The lower route, which is an enclosed uh, space, since it is an egress there, is designed as a sound gallery too. It is painted yellow over, so, all over, so it is weightless and scalelessness, creating a perception of infinite space and shifting the focus on sound. The open stairs, uh, route above is cascading and plays out as a panorama, proposing a much larger scene, inviting many act involving many actors and spatial agents. The stair extends above the fourth gallery to give a different point of view of the art and exhibitions within. While they are under construction, it allows those without an entry ticket to, to have a view of the art from above. It therefore changes the identity of the museum as a place for viewing art in the conventional way. For viewing, for further 
To further identify artistic experience from the paid gallery only, each floor is provided with switch elements, which are marked in red, so that they would double up as spaces for art. For example, the museum store on the left can transform into a performance space. The art handling entrance on the right can double as an outdoor theater. The envelope exterior cladding is another special agent designed as a black mirror stainless steel with its windows also long with the floor slabs disguised from appearing on the exterior so it would transmit scalelessness or obfuscating the real scale of the museum. The black mirror stainless steel combined with its prism shape turns the museum envelope into a constantly changing surface. Individual panels are designed with an oil can effect this produces circular micro-indents into the surface of the envelope and generates refractions of the surroundings. The envelope stretches the context, compresses it, refigures it, delays it, displays it, multiplies it. It projects the sun onto the pavement too, creating a transient landscape of light interwoven with the shadows of the surrounding foliage. The mirror stainless steel also is extended inside the window reveals to displace the depth of the envelope with lateral views of the landscape. Instead of framing the exterior as it is, in the way that these beautiful windows on the right of the Walker Art Center and the Met Breuer do, windows at MoCA act as a device of displacement, constantly generating new landscapes and revealing new relationships and introducing the idea of a reality which is never addressed. In fact, there is no single point that visitors can stand and see MoCA entirely at once. To fully grasp it, it is necessary to travel through and around it. Inside, the act of entering the museum is a distinct spatial proposition, whereas the envelope exterior is composed of black mirror stainless steel. On the inside, its structure is exposed and painted in a very deep blue fire-resistant paint, forging an inversion of the inside and outside. The blue paint wraps around and all of the museum spaces, including the main gallery. It is sufficiently dark to recede and place focus on the bright walls and floors where art is displayed. When there is no natural light in the gallery, however, it gives the illusion that the inside is outside. Photographs of visitors to the museum on the very first opening day um, reflect a strong sense of an intense engagement with the art in the main gallery. Um, therefore, the fact that they are not in a wide cube space, I don't think is an issue. However, MoCA's politics resides in taking all of the museum parts and treating them equally as sites of aesthetic experience. And in doing so, question the, questions the identity of the museum as a place with a prescribed narrative for visitors, as a place where artistic experience is not open to all, and indeed the separation of the museum from everyday life. Just to summarize, a, a kind of a diagram mapping the relationship between the architect and the, and the users on the left the architect questions the conventions of a building by introducing shifts and assembles its elements as a heterogeneity rather than a unity. The building, which is the middle column, is then a set of spatial propositions that would otherwise not exist with different characteristics or affects. Different users on the right perceive these affects depending on their own interests and creative impulses, leading to their own unique subject positions. The relationship between the architect and the user is indirect. It is mediated by the building, which remains open for different types of encounter.
what a pitch. It's wonderful. I can see why you've made so many great buildings, Vashi. That was wonderfully intense in the time you had. Um, I'm hoping that there's a lot of dissensus, but I'm also thinking there might be some consensus as well as dissensus between the two of you. Before I um, ask Jack just to respond to what you've said, can I just check one thing, Vashi? When Jack talked about the museum being potentially, or, and, and the MCA Cleveland being potentially a, a site of aesthetic free association, would you plead guilty to that and say, actually, that's a desirable thing, or in your non-hierarchical museum, is there still a more contextualised or framed way of people behaving in different spaces? Exhibition space? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my experience is that uh, unless you set rules for how people should uh, behave, they will always surprise you. But they won't, they won't, you can, you can, you can, um, of course every building has, most buildings have a program and um, you, you, you are meant to somehow, you know, plan what they do in the space. But uh, I think one of the most exciting things is when they don't do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when we, we spent, we spent, you know, eight years working on the Yokohama uh, uh, project and there was never a kind of a specific day when it was going to open because it's a public building. It wasn't like, let's say, you, you know, here where, you know, we had to invite the queen and there were, you know, lots of anticipation to a specific day when somebody cuts a ribbon with a public building and a ferry terminal. There wasn't any of this. Uh, and, you know, I was somewhere else in town and, so, you know, suddenly I get a call saying, They've opened the building. <laughs> and I cannot tell you how much I rushed to, to get there because also there is no door because it's, a, it's just a ground, just, you know, there is no a place where you can kind of shut it. And all I wanted to do was to see how people are behaving. Uh, and I, I, you know, that's, that's the only exciting thing because, you know, you, you, you dream for quite a few years about what they might do, but actually they will do different things. For example, I'll give you, uh, you know, we, we, we fought for a long time to avoid any bollards on the roof. The roof allows cars to go for emergency services to go on top of the roof. And we thought that the bollards are an interruption in the space. And, um, you know, because they have to be bollards and you can pick up the best one and whatever, integrate them well in the space, but they are bollards. They were disruptions somehow. And yet, people were standing. I think I have a photograph, but people were standing on top of these bollards to try to get a better view of the water. So, I mean, it was, they were far more creative with the bollard than we ever imagined. And I think that, you know, yes, of course, for the purpose of comfort, I mean, this room has been planned so that everybody can see us and see each other, etc. And it's, it's important. It's important. But I think it's important also not to, well, I hope I tried to indicate it, to kind of build in there the potential where people will also make spaces their own. Performative as well. I thought the bollards were people enacting sculptural gesture, but that's the art historian in me rather than the man going through a ferry terminal. Um, Jacques, does, does what Farshid has explained and articulated in her own architecture, does this seem something fundamentally new in architecture to you? Or would you say that all architecture provides 
frames and contexts in which people, by definition, will act in certain ways. And we've just, we're just, this is slightly more porous because it's a, a ferry terminal. Well, I think there was, uh, there was a time where, you know, well, where architects, you know, I think, plan buildings with a, with a kind of definite idea, you know, of how people would inhabit those buildings, you know. And there was precisely the time of experimentation, experimentation, you know, I, I told about, when people precisely change a destination. And, well, and of course, when in our conversation, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, a French, you know, a French author, Michel de Certeau. Michel de Certeau did a lot of work about what he calls the arts of doing, meaning precisely the way in which, well, people entirely, entirely change the rules of the game, you know, by the way in which they inhabit, inhabit a building or the way in which, you know, they, so, so they, they walk, they walk and they behave, you know, in, in the streets, in the streets, you know, of the, in the street of the town. So I think, uh, I think uh, what is perhaps is specific now, you know, is, well, that the architects want in a way to, to anticipate, you know, the, also the indeterminacy, you know, of the building itself, you know, because there was a time where you, you, you could say there was a kind of determination, you know, by the architects or by the urbanists you know, of the use, of the use, of the, of the use and of the, of the use of the buildings or the behaviors, you know, of the inhabitants or inhabitants of the, inhabitants of the city or the, but I think, and, and there was precisely this kind of play, of play between, you know, the proposition and people, you know, working as artisans, you know, to change, to, to change, you know, the rule of the game. In, in a way, you know, we, we, can think of, we can think of it, you know, by reference, by perhaps it may seem a strange reference, by reference to Ruskin, to what Ruskin said, you know, about, about the Gothic art, you know, with the idea that there is the architect, you know, and there is the artisans, and the artisans change, you know, change small things and small things and small things, you know. And at the end, you know, the building becomes, becomes different meaning that, you know, this, the kind of imperialism of architect, you know, has been, you know, has, has been in fact con contradict, contradicted, you know, by the, by the, the artisan, by the, uh, the artisan, you know. And I think that in a way, you know, we, we, can, we can say that we, that, that we had a time, you know, when, well, uh, the people in the building, the people in the, in the city played this whole of the artisan, you know, the artisan changing, changing the very use of the the very use of, of the building, you know, and in, in a way also what I mentioned, you know, about the surrealist work or, you know, situationist in experimentation was part of this, you know. But now, what, which is what I, what, what I tried to say, but I'm, I'm not sure because I'm not an architect, I don't know, I don't know very well, you know, what, what is at stake, you know, in the, in the conversations between architects, you know. But uh, I'm, I'm struck by the, but as I said, by the, by the fact that it seems that they want to integrate, you know, to integrate, to integrate this play, to integrate the indeterminacy, you know, of, of, of a building or maybe it, you know, uh, well, uh, you know, housing building or a public, or a public building, you know. So I think, well, it is, um, for instance, when, when you think, I, 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 I just stop you no, 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 very quickly. No, when you when you think about when you when you you, you think you know of the affects you know and and clusters clusters of affects. Well, in a way, of course, it reminds me you know of uh, situationist ambiance you know situationist ambiance. So, so the idea precisely of re reconfiguring you know the very way of behaving you know in a you know in 
in a place, you know. Uh, well, uh, so I, uh, I, and I think what, what is interesting now perhaps is this, this kind of integration, you know, of the process of walking, process of changing, of changing space, you know, in the very conception of the building, but I, I may be totally wrong, you know, because I see it really from the outside. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think what we need to remember is that the, um, the, the conditions that um, an architect uh, receives mm. is not indeterminacy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we... But it changes. No, no, uh, no, it, it's like you're expected to provide mm. X number of one bedroom, mm. X number of three bedrooms, mm -hmm. X number of... It's, mm. uh, so, the, 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 if you like, the indeterminacy that, uh, that uh, you know, Jacques is referring to is obviously a kind of a dissensus that mm. we are introducing. Mm. Mm. And I would, I would, I, I think of it as integrating life. Mm. Um, life is not determinate. Life changes. And when you're b designing not just a single family house mm. where you know your owner, but mm. an unpredictable mm. uh, kind of set of inhabitants mm. that are likely to change over time, this mm. is life. So mm. as an architect, it's like somebody just wants two bedroom, three bedroom, X number of rooms from you. Mm. And you say, but what I'm really giving them is the way of living, mm. is about life in this building. So I, 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 I don't want it to be taken as a kind of a fashionable mm. kind of thing that, you know, we are reacting to the fact that, you know, yes, I think as architects we learn that, you know, the form follows function or mm. the kind of fu functionalist uh, dogma was, was kind of didn't quite work because that's not how life uh, unfolds. Uh, but uh, but I, 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 I think that everything I'm showing you is, is in a way, you know, are, are uh, the life we are giving to the buildings, mm. how the commissioners mm. of, of those buildings, you know, think, they, they think of it as different. They have like, you know, marketing plans and they just, they, 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 they think of metrics. Mm. They don't think space. Mm. They think size. They don't think space. That's how housing gets sold. They don't, you know, they don't think of these things. So I, I, I think that this issue of, you know, the, the transience or building in the idea of change to the buildings, uh, especially in the case of, I think, a residential building, is really, uh, at least that's what, that's what our motives are, is about thinking, how do you integrate life into them? The medieval town or city could be <clears throat> seen as a kind of assemblage of... Um, fragmented forms that eventually makes a quasi-unified whole, but that's not the aim. There's certain buildings, cathedrals, city walls, sometimes, sometimes not. I'm just wondering in a kind of slightly crass broad way whether your ideas about the, the fragmented nature of the architectural commission, meaning as you design a building, things change and things change because that's the process of design, and, and mm. whether that actually is just a pendulum swing or whether this feels in a kind of narrative way evolutionary for you yeah i mean i i think i went to school um learning architecture one way um i came out facing an entirely different uh game let's say because uh, I mean, actually, to, to this day, the way, um, the way we are taught is as if the, the building is some kind of linear narrative that the architect magically uh, kind of dreams. 
uh, and it is supposed to just happen. Uh, and that the ideas of a building comes from the architect mind. Uh, I don't think that's, that's the way it, it unfolds. And, and because of that, a lot of the architects who are probably just a little bit older than me, uh, be, probably because they are very successful and too busy to be involved every day and to, you know, to, 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 to kind of work in this, what I refer to as rhizomatic, you actually need to have a lot of time for the process. Uh, you, you know, and, and the kind of, if you like, the intellectualization of the project has to happen all the time, every day. It's not at the beginning. Uh, and that requires you to be totally involved. And that, that's something that architecture school cannot teach you. Uh, and, and I don't think it will, we will ever go back. That's, you know, it's just because buildings have become so much more complex. Our requirements of them are so much more. The process takes so long. There are so many actors in, uh, inside that actually it's a different game. Uh, and, and so I, I, you know, I don't think it's a fashion. I think it, we have to rethink the way we position ourselves inside buildings. And I think the great thing about it is that it allows buildings to be a lot more open-ended open if you... If you let, if you let, open and it is probably wrong, heterogeneous, uh, because of the fact that there are so many uh, different players in there. And yes, the architect somehow is the conductor of the aesthetic play, right? Uh, but there are a lot of other people who can, who can actually ad advise and, and work with the architect in, in great ways. It, it's a lot more challenging. It's like a game of rugby versus snooker. Uh, you know, there are many more players. So, you know, it's a different game. It's a different game. And how does this fit, Jacques, into a broader look at macro politics? And, I mean, is this potentially more egalitarian or it's just a different form of authoritarianism, the way that public buildings are, 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 are constructed in the end or the clients and the architects work together, whatever their aim? Well, I, I think it's... well. It's difficult to ask, you know, architects really to promote equality, you know, because of course the architect has his or her own ideas, you know, about how a building can be can 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 be egalitarian, of course. And for instance, well, for instance, you know, you know, there was a time there was a time where equality was more or less associated with certain idea of communal life, you know, and what, is, and, and what is specific, you know, in your project is that you say, but in fact, giving privacy to everybody, you know, uh, giving the same kind of privacy in affordable, uh, affordable apartments and, uh, and, you know, and, and expensive, expensive apartments, you know, is also a form of equality, you know, and so giving, giving to people who have not, who have not so much money, you know, the possibility to choose, you know, between being, between being in fact in common, you know, or having some kind of privacy. Well, it, it can be it can be thought of as well as a kind of egalitarian direction. If well, the problem, of course, is you know really uh, how how you can uh, how you can. Uh, really makes a deduction, you know. I have an egalitarian idea of architecture, so I, so I create, you know, <clears throat> I create in the same building, you know, with the same materials, you know, uh, more or less affordable, you know, uh, apartments, you know. Well, 
it is the idea of the architect, you know. And of course, but but, but of course there is there is a market, you know. And the, and the market it means that the, if the afford if, if you have an affordable you know apartment, you know, with with more luxury in a way, you know, and with the same kind of luxury, you know, as a, you know as an expensive apartment, it it may it, it also means of course, and, and and I think you mentioned it, you know, that that, that the apartment, you know, of course, takes on a new value, you know, and that inhabitant in, in, instead of changing, you know, changing, you know, its way of life uh, or, or become, uh, well, uh, things that it's, 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 a, it's a right time, you know, but to sell, to sell the apartments, you know, and make a profit on it. So it's, it's quite, it's quite difficult, it's quite difficult, you know, really to plan, to plan, to plan, to plan equality. And of course, it's always, uh, uh, it's always easier, you know, when, when, when it is about, uh, when it is a public space, you know, because of course the people who walk in the public space, you know, well, they have no possibility, you know, to, to sell that space, you know. They don't, they don't buy it, they don't, they, don't, they don't sell it, you know. And so, of course, I think the experience of equality is quite, is quite different, you know, because it, 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 has no, it has no, you know, market value, you know. But there is a, the well, user. I'm but not a, sure about that. Uh, I mean, for the user, I mean, for, for the, the user. for the user, I don't mean, I don't, I, no, I don't mean, of course, for, for the director yes. of the museum. I mean, for the user, for the people inside, you know, of course. <laughs> but know, there, well, no, this, there is a growing belief in London, and it seems to mm. be borne out by people's experience and, and <clears throat> what we seem to know is happening mm. of the privatisation of public spaces. That the way you behave in public spaces is much more policed, or one has to get sort of permissions to do certain things, but also public space, public buildings and the spaces that are framed by those are increasingly being sold off or mm. privatised. I suppose that's an observation, not a question. Um, let's, before we move out to the floor, I'm curious about language and style that you've written, Jacques, about uh, this in terms of cinema and, and um, literature. But Farshid has talked about artist, architectural style and language and the pursuit of something that is, I've used the word egalitarian before, but something that is, that, that is that a, a style or a language that somehow is, that enables a broader um, and more egalitarian experience of the architecture to be built. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Well, it's a, it's a kind of a, uh, a, it relates to, um, you know, not having just aims at the end of a building providing a, a kind of an experience of equality, but how do you actually get there? So there are inputs from outside, and then the output you want it to be, let's say, a kind of an experience of equality, but then you need to find, the, let's call it structure, that somehow um, generates uh, this condition of equality. So I, 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 I've used the kind of... Um, uh, as, an, as the opposite example, you know, the, the buildings like the Guggenheim Museum in New York, uh, where, you know, the, the part and the whole are uh, in sync all the time, and the whole determines the parts. And so there, there is the kind of the big idea, and it drives, um, you know, the rule for every other part in the building. Uh, what I have tried to communicate with this idea of, I haven't found a good word for it, but, but assemblage is a, is a Delusian term, is to, is to think that somehow the building can be um, arranged or configured so that the different parts has a certain autonomy of their own as well as participating in the construction of the whole. And this makes 
the whole have certain performative aspect as well as every single part. And, and therefore, the building becomes uh, more heterogeneous in, in terms of experience because different parts of it, you know, we are now in an auditorium. It doesn't have to be the same as, you know, another space in the building. And I think that especially the larger the buildings become, the more they kind of beg this kind of richness from a user point of view. Uh, and I think that the contemporary process of being a kind of a more fragmented process naturally lends itself to this, to, 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 to buildings that are more, more heterogeneous in nature. Uh, that, that, as I said, I'm, I'm a, an architect struggling through my practice. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's also about, it's a, it's a working construction, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's trying to make sense of uh, the kind of the process of design that uh, you know we find ourselves in, and how we can actually be opportunistic, uh, you know, of the process and and make buildings that are um, that 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 provide this kind of experience of perhaps equality if we understand it as buildings that allow people to do different things at the time, same time. Jacques, I'm slightly shifting emphasis before, as I said, before we go out to the floor, but. You've talked about art in terms of as a regime, and you mm. talk about the three aspects of that. Um, to my knowledge, you haven't been so specific in the way that you approach architecture. Are there distinct parallels? Do you see them? Do you see, do you, would you see a regime of architecture having a similar uh, structure, or is it something completely different? Well, it's difficult. <laughs> I'm not really thought, <laughs> thought about, about, about this. Of course, we have, we have this kind of Hegelian model, you know, of architecture, you know, yeah. of architecture func functioning, you know, in, in different, in, in different uh, configure, configuration, you know. Well, basically, the, I think basically the, the, problem, the problem with architecture, you know, is that, well, in each, in each, in each regime, you know, um, architecture has this kind of specificity, you know, but it first, of uh, two specific Specificity. First, of course, it is the art. It is the art, you know, in which the artist, the artist, you know, tries to create, to create, or, or has tried in the past to create, you know, the kind of minimal distance, you know, between the will, between the artistic will and the, the artistic, the artistic approach and the aesthetic approach. So, the, so the architecture is the art in which, you know, well, of course, the architect knows exactly what he or she wants to. To do, you know, and and so and so always anticipate, you know, which also means that since architecture, you know, of course, is a, is a, is a big thing, you know, that of course it, it needs to be it, it needs to be commissioned, you know, to be commissioned by a, by a state, a state, a town, a town, or by or, or by market by by market owners, you know, it means that. At the same time, you know, the power of architecture makes it more or less, you know, of course, dependent, dependent on, dependent of, dependent of, of course, on powers, you know, and, and when, uh, and, and when, uh, and when, and when, and when Farshid, of course, uh, put, uh, puts in the fragmentation, you know, of the process, you know, of course, you, you know, just, just beside, you, you know, post, post, you know, little sheets of paper, you know, the paperol, you know, of course, I can think it's, it's so easy to be, to, 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 to be heterogeneous, you know, when you are a writer, when you are a writer, when you are, when you are a painter, when you are a performer, you know, and of course, it's, it's not so easy, it's not so easy. 
easy, it's not so easy, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to architecture. So, so there is this kind of this, this paradox, uh, in, in a way, you know, that architecture, you know, is the art, but uh, but is perhaps uh, well uh, the most uh, the, the the less a the less able, you know, in a way to well to, to play against itself, you know, which is the case for literature, which is the case for a multiplicity of art, which means that uh, I, I think it's impossible to think of a specific regime of architecture because well in each in each regime, you know, the architects, you know, of course, uh, uh, you know, obey obey to orders, you know, coming from of course different kind of people at, at different state different stage, you know, in history, but but always with this kind of negotiation, negotiation between 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 its perfection and its imperfection. And it's always a kind of Ruskinian problem, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned, you know, earlier, you know. And I think, uh, and so I think, uh, well, we, we are still, we are still uh, in this, uh, well, in this process, of course, because we are in a moment where, where we can say that, uh, that uh, the whole of life is more and more conditioned, you know, by, only by the market, you know, <laughs> no, no, not so much by state, not so much, you know, by social hierarchies, but by the market itself, you know. And, and the question is how, Architecture, you know, can precisely play with its own heterogeneity, you know, in, to, to, to create some kind, of, to create some kind of diversion, you know, from the from the well, the, the perception, of the perception, and the you know the the, the, the requirements of, of the market. Well, that's perhaps not exactly you know your question, you know, but it's how I can you know perhaps displace it, you know. Yes, that was a very eloquent no, actually, but also you handled the, the question well. Um, Farshid, the, the, um, the, the notion of um, the market and I suppose therefore neoliberalism in particular and the role of patronage and client is always mentioned with architecture quite rightly and it's often said that a building can only be as good as its client. Um, as this talk is broadly about politics and space but it's about aesthetics and architecture as the frame, um, what have been, and it's quite early to say I admit, the discernible impacts, or what do you think the discernible impacts of the rise globally of populism and architecture are? I mean, what, what are your thoughts initially about where that may lead us? Populism in, in, in what? Politically. Oh, politically. <laughs> <laughs> you asked a very big question. I have. Um, oh. I mean, on one level, I, I, marks authoritarian, more authoritarian buildings, the return to a kind of uh, the, the Uber is the commissioning aesthetic, or do you think that also the, the notion of public space and that porosity of public space may be, in a way, become more acute? No, it's interesting you mentioned public space with, with your other question, because I was thinking, you know, the, the question that for me comes up with the idea of the census in buildings mm. is, you know, what about the city? Because when we first started discussing, mm. um, you know, Jacques was kind of positing like somehow the urban space is different to, to, to buildings. And for us architects, we make the urban space with the buildings. Mm. We make them. So there would be no urban space if there are not buildings. So we, we don't think of them as two separate. We make the street by our buildings. It might be sometimes between our own buildings or between our buildings and our fellow architect buildings. Mm. So we make, we make the street. Um, and so for us, the, the way you occupy the street is no different to the way you occupy the building. The, the street has walls. If it didn't have walls, you wouldn't have the street. Uh, in most places, I mean, you could have lines, let's say, but that's another kind of border. 
So I, I, we, don't, we don't distinguish the, the urban space, and that's why I, I don't see, let's say, um, you know, the situation is a kind of proposal, a very different proposal to what we could think inside of a building. We could, we could think of them. We could also think of people, you know, moving through buildings and behaving in the same way. What is quite different about the situation is, is that they thought of it from the point of the, from the point of the end user only. It's kind of this, the experiencing subject. Whereas for an architect, we don't find the built space, whereas it's, whether it's street or interiors, as found, we make them. And so we need to question our own kind of set of decisions, not only think about the end user, but actually what are the decisions we are making ahead of time so that the end user would be free, equal, etc. So, but I was thinking back to the issue of the census that you know, somehow, how, what does it mean about the city? What, what, what happens to the city? If, if every building is a kind of an aesthetic Statement. adventure, let's mm. call it. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, and we think about it because, you know, I do think that uh, what I find quite powerful mm. about the, your idea of using the census in the context of, is, is precisely, for me, it's a more powerful idea in architecture than, let's say, art, uh, uh, you know, because of the everydayness, the, the kind of the unavoidable everydayness of buildings and the fact that you do have always the kind of the status quo there to break or to shift or to invert, whereas you may not do that uh, in, in the everydayness of it in all forms of uh, art. Now, but if we do that in every single building and every single building becomes specific, then what happens to the city? Are we saying that also the city as a whole is also no longer there? Is the city also heterogeneous, fragmented? I think that that's, you know, is, is it because, because they, they are, we are making two at once. We are making the city as well as the buildings when we are working on the buildings. Well, I think it's not exactly the same thing, you know, because, uh, well, the, the heterogeneity, is, heterogeneity is part of the, of, of really the, the history, the history of the city, you know. Mm. Well, uh, you know, if you live in a city like London, like, like, like Paris, you know, no, very, very, of course, you know, the question is not so much, you know, about how a building, you know, will construct, will construct an urban space, you know. Or it, it is, you know, it is about, you know, uh, the transformation of the, the transformation of the urban space, meaning the transformation, you know, of its uh, historical configuration. You know, if you think, of, if you think, for instance, you know, of the of, of the gentrification, you know, of of, pop, of, of popular popular neighborhoods, you know, uh, which happened, you know, in in in, in all in all countries, you know. So you have you you have where well, you have the same buildings and you have a different and, and very often you have a different town, you know, with the with, with the same buildings and, and I think it's also part of the of the politics of space, so, so politics of space is, is not simply, you know, the politics of the architects and, and, and the urbanists, you know. Mm. The, the cities are, in every description, still clusters of effects, mm. to use your phrase, or the Deleuzean phrase. Anyway, let's chuck you out to the floor. We can't see in the darkness who's putting hands up. Could you wait until the mic comes up? There's a question okay. here at the front, mm. and then we'll take others if I can see. Yeah, and then here. <laughs> there. Just here. There you Family, family question. No, don't split. <laughs> so, it's working? Um, I was really interested in what you were saying about how um, 
architects get a kind of deontological, like prescriptive brief, and they change it into like a way of life, almost adding in a teleological, consequentialist element to it, um, like applying an ethical framework to like a moral crisis. And Jacques, you mentioned how equality was previously, or you know, how equality was about communal space. Mm. And do you think that? that definition of equality has changed? And if so, Fashi, like, how do you think that will affect the commissions that architects get? Oh, my God. I don't know. Do you know how to answer that? <laughs> you answer first, because you are an architect. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think that the... the um, I think equality doesn't mean the same thing in all kinds of buildings. Mm. Um, you know, equality in a housing project is, is different to a museum building, to a ferry terminal, and each one of these mm. uh, will also, their, their kind of conventions, orders, will change over time. So I, I, I think that the, the, uh, the kind of the question has to be defined by the architect at that time. So it's difficult to say now, um, you know, how it would change the commission of architects. I, I don't think any client comes and says to you, I want a building that produces equality. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it, it wouldn't. They think of it in terms of the set of activities that that building has to propose and the way, the way, the way I've been trying to uh, kind of um, uh, explain the projects and, and really inspired by, 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 by Jacques Ranciere's uh, idea of the census is that is to introduce other possibilities beyond those that are required of the project. Okay. Well, of course. Uh, well, uh, uh, well, the main point. The main point for me. For me, you know, I must. I, I must. Uh, I must remind you of, of it. Of this uh, here. You know, is that in a way. Equality cannot be produced. You know, equality is not uh, is not a goal. I, I've always said it. You know, uh, equality is not a goal. It's first a, a kind of uh, it, it's a point of departure. You know, you behave you behave as you, you behave as equal beings. You know, mm. we, which means that you know, in a way, the, uh, the problem of the architect is not how how will I create uh, I, how will <clears throat> will I create equality, but how I behave as an architect. You know, with the same capacity. You know, as any, as anybody else. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that the question of egal of equality uh, must be must always be uh, be, be you know for, of course uh, shifted. You know, mm -hmm. from the idea of the result. You know, from for, to, to the idea to the idea of, of, of the principle. So I, so in a way, I would say, well, well, there is there is you know the anticipation by the architect. People will will be more <coughs> equal. You know, in this kind in this kind of environment, and, and there are, and and there are. There have been, of course, uh, many many responses, you know, in the past, you know, with very very surprising, uh, very surprising effects, you know, because you, we know, for instance, how uh, very 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 often, you know, well, residential buildings created precisely to create e equality, to create some kind of equality, and to give a kind of well, a kind of decent, you know, and, and rich life, you know, to people from the lower classes, lower classes, in fact, you know, became they all they all 
became ghettos, you know, in different, in different ways, you know, but they all became ghettos, you know, which precisely shows the limits, the limits of the idea that you create equality with a certain, with a certain design and a certain form of, of planning, which doesn't mean, of course, that architects must, <laughs> must just stop, you know, uh, being, be, be being concerned with, with equality. But, so, but, but basically, I think, you know, you cannot define, you know, you cannot define the way in which equality will be, will be produced. But you can, you can try to act, you know, when you are an architect, a writer, you know, or any, or any kind of, uh, any kind of things, you know, as people who think that all, that all, that all human beings and that the human beings who will, who will go in this space, you know, and use this space, you know, have the same capacity as you have, you know. And I think it's not simply formal, it's not simply, oh, I'm equal, I think that every people is, is equal. I think, I think it's part of the very conception of the very conception of a building, of the very conception of, of a space, you know. But you cannot precisely translate it, in, in, in my point of view, you cannot translate it in, you know, a kind of determination, you know, of the ways of equality. So the fundamental inequality in the idea of equality. Of course, an academy is based on a kind of egalitarian idea that all artists and architects are equal. Doesn't always work out, but on that note, let's get a distinguished artist to enter the fray, Anthony Gormley. Farshid, um, Jack, thank you so much. I think um, with both of you, we've got, as it were, examples of specific buildings, but then, Jack, you put a whole process into... I think, a really critical political framework. And I guess the question that I have is it seems that for most architects, they have the choice of either being in, in, in some way uh, a servant of late capitalism or becoming a servant of the public in making often iconic buildings like your wonderful Cleveland Museum. And I guess, I you know, in thinking about what you were just saying, Jacques, that it's a question not of product, but of principle. I want to ask about actually the processes of how we make the city, how the city becomes an organism. Because it, it seems, yes, China is building new cities from scratch. And there are many examples of cities, as it were, um, uh, coming from the design board. But I'm interested that perhaps what we're arriving at is the idea of architecture as a conversation. And I was very struck, Rashid, by your insistence that actually architecture is a form of renewing life, seeing how life can evolve through the different forms of association that architecture offers. But the fact is that um, I think that open-mindedness and, and, and I think really utopian idea about architecture as, as in, in a sense, giving uh, new hope for people in cities and your wish for the egalitarian notion of a city. I don't, I don't see how, how it's going to be uh, yeah, produced by the fact that the two main players are often public bodies that want icons, and a, um, an e economy of urban farming that wants maximum, maximum return on minimum investment. Perhaps you could both comment. 
question for you. Well, I mean, I, I, for me, in a way, uh, Jacques' framework of the police and the political has kind of made it easier mm. for, for us architects because it means that you kind of actually, and forgive me if I get this wrong, but that the political is always in the context of the system, mm. in the context of the status quo, in the context of the dominance of a regime. Uh, and so, in a way, rather than thinking that, you know, those kinds of uh, powers uh, that don't necessarily think of the city in the way we'd like them, uh, you know, they should remove, they should go away. Capitalism should just be packed up. We need a new world. Uh, that there is the possibility to act from within and to sh make shifts. Uh, and, and that's, I think, where... Jacques is, um, uh, you know, giving hope uh, that, uh, and, 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 you know, to, and setting a kind of a history for it, that there's always been this possibility through different artistic practices to, to shift things, and, uh, and, 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 and that's actually, it, that's what legitimizes, uh, if you like, uh, aesthetic practices that, that, you know, they look at the world in a different way and they make openings for people to participate in cities in a different way. So I, for, he's made it easy for me, easier for me, <laughs> like within this framework, mm -hmm. so that I just, you know, I, I don't have to worry about saving the world, mm -hmm. but that in areas where I find myself having the opportunity to practice, to makeshifts, uh, and, and that's, but I let him say. <laughs> no, I think I have not, uh, I have not much, you know, to, to add. Yeah, the fact is that, uh, well, now we, we live, we live and we work, you know, in a, one, in, in a form of domination, you know, mm. which, has, which has become more overarching, you know, than, than, than perhaps any time in the past, or long, perhaps long in the past, you know. It's true, it's true that, but, so that, 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 that now, you know, you cannot, you, you cannot, you know, uh, think, well, I stopped doing anything, you know, I stopped doing anything, uh, so before capitalism, you know, uh, is overturned, you know. And, and also I stopped, uh, I stopped working with the idea of guilt, of culpability, and so on, and so on, complacency, etc. because of course we all work, you know, well, in, in, in this, inside the system of domination and try, well, try what? Uh, try to create some, some spaces, some zones, you know, of equality, some zones of of freedom, you know, some zones of encounter, encounter, conversation, and of course, those, uh, those words, of course, can also, of course, can be banalized, can be verified, and we, we know that there is no, there is no, there is no pure word, you know, in a way, you know, and so, but, but I think uh, we, 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 we try, and not the architects in general, but some architects, you know, <laughs> some architects, uh, you know, and, well, try, uh, uh, try to, well, to, to, to live, you know, Know, uh, open the possibilities, the possibilities of overworlds, you know, and those overworlds they can be very, they can be very now, now, you know, it, it can be very, 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 very narrow, you know, spaces, you know, of, of resistance, of, of spaces of openness to. 
to another, to another, to another future, you know. And uh, so, so, uh, so, uh, at the same time, I, I agree, I agree with with Farshid, and, and of course, uh, as she said, that 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 he, uh, that he got the idea from from, from me. <laughs> I must agree, of course. But uh, well, <laughs> but uh, well, and, and at the same time, the question, the question for me is well. Precisely in this kind of configuration, you know, uh, what kind of how how can we negotiate, you know, the, the, the this kind of uh, the, the, the margin, you know, the margin of freedom, the margin, the margin, you know, of of dissent of dissensus, because because in a way, and of course, it, of course, it's it, it's quite different, you know. Of course, uh, uh, as a philosopher, you know, you can have you can have you, you, the biggest the biggest you know the biggest you know uh, the biggest margin, you know, because uh, philosophy doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't co cost money, you know. So so and, and, and there's a problem with with architecture. It costs <laughs> it costs money, you know. And, and 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 the more money you know your practice okay. costs, of course, the more you are complicit, you know, with the with the old. Of the, of the system, you know, and uh, this is why I try uh, never, you know, precisely, you know, to fault architects or people like this, saying, "Oh, you are sold to capitalism, you are sold to capitalism, etc., etc." Okay, so, but well, uh, uh, we try, we try with different, with different means, you know, in different ways, and of course, with with different margins of margins, you know, of of action, you know, what to to just to 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 allow you know some 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 zones of some zones of freedom you know open and and I think this is possible I, and I think this is not mere illusion you know you cannot say wow but it it, it does it does nothing you know you don't overthrow the system the problem is who overthrows the system now on which note of questions and more consensus than dissensus I need to be the voice of authority and close everything down. Um, I think we've had an incredibly um, lucid and clear discussion in spite of the complexity of what's going on. You, both of you, almost as clear as that 90-year-old telling the world if the person on the fucking seventh floor could close the fucking lift because I'm fucking mm. 90 and I've got to walk all mm. the way up. Mm. Sorry, if you think I have Tourette's syndrome, it's one of Farshid's slides that's still resonating in my head. But um, I suppose the, the, the rule of that is if architecture doesn't work, people will make their voices heard. We can only hope. But anyway, on that note, this series will continue in an ad hoc way uh, over the next months and years, but um, we'll be hard-pressed to have anything as clear and generous and articulate as tonight. Thank you, Farshid Mashavi and Jacques Rontier, very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>